Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like uh, you start a service with a prayer of confession. I have to come out and make a confession. Sherry, our uh, amazing ASL translator, who we're so grateful for, asked me today if I could go slowly. And then I sat backstage pounding coffee. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens today. Okay. <laughs> My name is Johnny, like I said before, and uh, we are excited that you're here gathered with us, whether you're in the room with us today or you are online watching. We are uh, just grateful that you're calling the bridge your church home today. Uh, this morning we're in week two of our series called The Kingdom of God, and uh, the series is working through uh, various aspects of uh, the kingdom of God, various attributes of the kingdom of God. And here at the bridge, we use that language a lot. We talk about the kingdom of God a lot, and the hope of this series is to flesh out what we mean when we say that. So if, you, if you've been part of the bridge for a while, you're going to hear in the preaching, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, and maybe you're wondering, what exactly does that mean? What does that mean? And so hopefully this series fleshes out for us what it means that we are citizens of God's kingdom, what it means when we talk about living as people of the kingdom of God here in the world together. It can get a little hazy, and so hopefully this series is bringing us back to the basics a little bit. So this morning, we're going to jump right into Luke chapter 4. And Luke chapter 4 is really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you read uh, the verses just preceding this in chapter 3, uh, Jesus goes down and is baptized in the river by John the Baptist. The, the Spirit uh, descends on him, and he's filled with the Spirit in that moment. Uh, and that seems like a good place to start your earthly ministry. But no, after that, Jesus then, at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, goes into the wilderness where he is tempted uh, and fasting for 40 days. So for 40 days, he just doesn't eat or drink anything in the wilderness. He comes, uh, and there are temptations given to him by the devil, and he passes those temptations. And now Jesus is coming out of uh, the wilderness, and he's headed back to his hometown, and it says he's filled up with the Spirit. That's kind of where our story picks up today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. So Jesus returned to Gal Galilee, his hometown, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up in the synagogues, uh, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so my wife and I met in high school in Waterloo, Iowa, just a beautiful town, not really, uh, but we met there in high school uh, in Waterloo, and, and her parents still live in Waterloo, and so several times a year we find ourselves going back so my kids can see their grandparents so we can have a little break, uh, you know, things like that, the reasons that you go uh, home, <laughs> and every once in a while we find ourselves back in Waterloo. 
And when we're in Waterloo, sometimes you'll be out at a restaurant, sometimes you'll be out in a store, and you'll see someone, and it'll be like, I remember that person from high school, or I remember that person from when I was a kid. And, and here's the thing. I'm sure that that person is great. I'm sure that they're wonderful. It's just that I haven't interacted with that person in probably 10 to 15 years at this point. We might have gone to the same math class when we were freshmen in high school, but we're in our 30s now, man. What do we possibly have in common at this point? And so I, uh, I kind of do the look away, okay? The classic, oh, this menu is so interesting. You see what I'm saying? Now, some of you are not like this. Some of you are the person who sees that person from high school, and you run over, and you're excited, and that's great. I'm not decrying you, but for me, uh, I'm just avoiding those interactions as much as possible. When I'm in my hometown, I'm trying to see the grandparents, I'm trying to get back out, okay? It's not social hour when I'm there. Jesus has a very different idea. He, uh, fresh from 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus not only returns to his hometown, but he heads right to the place where he knows everyone will be hanging out. And then he takes it even a step further by getting up in front of all of those people to give. Jesus is not like me hiding behind his menu. Jesus is going right to his hometown. He's going right into the synagogue. And he's going right into that kind of position to speak to everyone. And if you think about it, this is, a, this is a rough metaphor, but if you think about it, this moment is kind of like when a candidate is announcing that they're running for president, because Jesus is announcing something here. He's announcing the beginning of his earthly ministry, and when candidates announce that they're going to, they go to a place, maybe their hometown, they go to a place uh, that means something to them and something to their history. This is what Jesus is doing. He's going back to the roots. He's going back to his hometown. So the stage is set. We're back here in Nazareth, and then Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads a doozy of a passage to start his ministry. He reads Isaiah chapter 61. Now, Isaiah 61 was a promise made to Israel while they were living in captivity in Babylon. Their nation had been taken from them. It had been destroyed all around them. They had been carried away, and they were now living as exiles, living as aliens in the land of Babylon. That's the situation in which they received Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is also an echo of a promise made in Leviticus. The words of Isaiah are powerful to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind. The oppressed will be set free. This is what it says in Isaiah 61. And all of those things hinge on what uh, Isaiah calls the year of the Lord's favor, and the year of the Lord's favor is an allusion to this passage in Leviticus 25 where they are discussing what is called the year of jubilee, the year of jubilee. Now, before you glaze over, I promise you this is actually really important stuff. It really matters that Jesus picked this passage, which was then making allusions all the way back to another passage in Leviticus. This is intentional behavior by Jesus. This is not an accident that he does this. The whole story that Jesus is calling on when he begins his ministry is important for us to know. Our passage in Luke helps us define and understand the kingdom of God by drawing on what God has always intended for God's people. 
Jesus places himself in the line of God's commandments throughout history, God's plan throughout history. This is not, Jesus does not really come with a new message. What Jesus comes is with a very old message, finding finally its fulfillment. And so Jesus is drawing a straight line now between Jubilee and the Lord's favor, and he has come and saying that he is going to fulfill God's ultimate plan for the world. So what is Jubilee? What, who cares, right? What's so great about this Jubilee thing? In the Jewish law, Jubilee was intended to be <clears throat> the great economic and social equalizer. The idea of Jubilee sounds absolutely banana sandwich to us today. This is the idea. Every 50th year, if someone had sold their ancestral lands, those lands were to be returned to them. Every 50 years, if someone had sold themselves into slavery because of financial hardship, every 50 years, that family was intended to be released from their slavery. They were to be released from debt economically and socially. Every 50 years, everything kind of gets reset. That's, that's a wild idea. That's a really kind of a strange picture that God chose for his people. That is about uh, everything getting reset. The year of Jubilee was about release from debt, release from captivity, release from oppression. The year of Jubilee was all about salvation, salvation for the people of God. So fast forward, that's Leviticus 25. Fast forward now to Isaiah chapter 61. And the people of Israel, like I said, are living as captives in Babylon. And now the year of Jubilee, what Isaiah calls the year of the Lord's favor, has taken on additional meaning. It has grown in its theological and its practical significance for the people of God. It's no longer just about economic and social equality anymore. It's become about the national life of the Jewish people. All of Israel needed a year of Jubilee. It used to be that the year of Jubilee was just for the downtrodden, the cast out, the oppressed, those who had had to sell their property because of financial woes, whatever. That's who used to be the benefactor. But now in Isaiah chapter 61, all of Israel is looking forward to the year of Jubilee. All of Israel longed for salvation, for the day that they would be able to return to their ancestral homes once again, where they'd be able to be the people that they were meant to be in the land that God had given them once again. And so now fast forward to Luke chapter 4. By the time of Luke chapter 4, the meaning of Jubilee had grown again. And I'm not saying changed because the core is always there. It's growing, it's growing, the, Im the impact and the meaning. Now the Jewish people had returned to their ancestral homes. They had been granted the year of the Lord's favor out of Babylon, thank God, right? But they were living as an occupied people. Rome, in many ways, made them feel like captives in their own land. Sure, they were back in the promised land. Sure, they were in their ancestral homes, but they weren't self-determining. They didn't have all the rights that they would get to have. They didn't get to have all the freedoms that they would get to have if they were a self-determining people. They were now waiting for the overthrowing of Rome. And so the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, gets this added dimension for Israel, that this is the time of national salvation. It's no longer just salvation for the poor. It's no longer just salvation from captivity. Now 
It's salvation from the Roman Empire and the restoration of the nation of Israel. When Jesus stands up and quotes these words, this is what the people are thinking. That might be hard to believe, but this is the imagination of the year of the Lord's favor, the imagination of the year of Jubilee that these people have. This is, this is pregnant with meaning. I mean, we couldn't put more into these verses if we wanted to. These words represented something very spiritual for the people, a return to right worship of, of Yahweh, of God, and it also represented something very physical to these people that they would have their land, their freedoms, their rights, something very physical, their, their physical lives would change. And it's safe to say that Jesus, when he quotes these words, also had something very physical and very spiritual in mind. So I had a conversation this week with uh, a loved one of mine. It was a family member of mine. It was a, it was a good conversation. It was very respectful. Uh, we had a difference of opinion. We didn't yell or shout I, that's still possible uh, to have civil discourse, and we did. Um, my, my loved one was encouraging me to tone it down a little bit with regard to the positions that I take on social issues, specifically on the issues of race and racism in America. And we went back and forth a little bit, uh, and I explained why I think it's important for me to speak up on issues and speak up and, and hope and press for changes to be made, that I don't think the racial situation in this country is, is as God would intend it to be. And I said, I think it's important that I say that. And uh, this loved one of mine basically told me that Jesus didn't get involved in social issues, and so I shouldn't either. They said Jesus was all about heart change, and so I as a pastor needed to be focused on the heart of people, not on social things, not on the, the physical thing. You stay, you know, stay out of politics, stick to sports, that kind of situation. That was their encouragement to me. My focus, like Jesus' focus, should be on individual hearts. So uh, I read this line in a commentary. I don't usually quote commentaries because they're kind of, you know, dry as toast. But I read this line and I thought it was really good, so I'm sharing it with you today. In Luke... Jesus is no social reformer and does not address himself in any fundamental way to the political structure of this world. But he is deeply concerned with the literal, physical needs of men as with their spiritual needs. So, that's a very fancy way of saying no. Jesus did not put forward any specific social platform or make any specific appeal to the political structures of his day. If you read through the Gospels, it's pretty clear uh, that that is the case. Jesus was not putting forward a specific set of policy proposals that then he was going to Pilate and saying, hey, you should really adopt these things. That wasn't Jesus's deal. But if you read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus is absolutely concerned with the literal physical needs of the people around him as well as their spiritual needs. And that's the tension point because social issues make an impact on our physical selves. Social issues create situations that have impact on our literal physical lives and bodies. And so to care for literal and physical lives and bodies might not be making a specific set of social platforms that need to be adopted, but it does say something about social structures. It has to interact. You can't care for a person's body 
without caring about the social situation that is creating the situation on their body. Is it a specific set of platforms? No, it is not. But to say that Jesus was only concerned about spiritual things is to misread the gospel. For Jesus, there was no division between the spiritual or the physical. Any attempts to say Jesus was only concerned with spiritual things is as misguided as an attempt to say that Jesus was only concerned with societal change. Jesus was more complex than that. There's a both and. There's a yes and to Jesus' ministry. It is very spiritual and yet also very physical. We can't pull them apart as much as we try. You can't spiritualize the Gospels because Jesus is out and about healing and doing good deeds and doing good works. They're, they're, they're inexplicably, inexorably tied to, together. The phrase, I have come to set the captives free and proclaim good news to the poor, would have been understood by his listeners as having both physical and spiritual levels. The totality of Jesus's ministry demonstrates that the physical and the spiritual are tied together. And thus, as citizens of the kingdom of God, our concerns cannot only be physical, nor can they only be spiritual. Like Jesus, our concerns have to find themselves merged in the middle. And that's what makes the kingdom of God so different from the world around us. If you want to make, uh, sometimes I talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. That's what makes the difference so stark. Because the kingdom of God calls us to work for justice and freedom. This is how Jesus started. Good news for the poor. Set the captives free. It calls us to this. But it also requires us to know that spiritual renewal both in us and in those around us is vital to that change. Those things are tied together. And so the kingdom of God never says, if you just adopt these social platforms, everything will get better. Nor does it say, if everybody just heard the name of Jesus, everything would get better. It knows that both of those things have to come together and meet and touch each other for something really to happen. The words Jesus quotes from Isaiah declare a physical reality that requires spiritual transformation. So this is where it's going to get complicated. The words Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah declare good news for the poor. And the thing about good news for the poor is that it will be bad news for the rich unless the rich have spiritual transformation. When Jesus declares that the captives will be set free, this is good news for the captives, but it will be bad news to the captors unless they undergo spiritual transformation. So this might be a new and difficult thought for us this morning because if you're like me, a lot of times good news for someone else can feel like bad news for you. I'm going to give you an example. I want us to set aside politics and set aside preconceived notions. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? This is just an example. On average, I was doing some research, the, the average undocumented worker in the United States <clears throat> makes 42% less than either an American citizen or a legal immigrant. 42% less is what you can get away with paying an undocumented 
worker. Now again, I'm not getting into the politics of document. I don't want to get into it. This is just the facts. If the average undocumented worker made the same amount of money as a documented worker, that would be good news for the undocumented worker. Can you imagine how pumped you would be if you went to your boss and they were like, here's the deal, 42% raise this year. You'd lose your mind. You'd go buy another car. I mean, we'd go out of control for this kind of like, I would love, Suzanne, write it down. I would love this raise. Thank you. 42%. That would be good news to any of us. That would be great news for the undocumented worker. But a lot of those undocumented workers are working in the fields they're picking our produce. And so if they get a 42% pay increase, my cost of produce will likely go up 42%. I don't know about you, but that sounds like bad news. I will not be happy with 42% more expensive produce. So good news to this person makes bad news for me, the consumer. If I'm really honest, I could buy a little less produce and I could probably afford it at 42% more. But 42% more for that undocumented worker means 42% higher price for me. Good news for them makes bad news for me. Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes good news for someone is bad news for us. But here's the trick. Here's the complexity. What if it only feels like bad news because of my own spiritual need? If I had the same mindset as Jesus, would that still feel like bad news? If I had the same eyes to see as Jesus had, would that still feel like bad news? If I could see the connection between those two things, would it still feel like bad news? Does a kingdom perspective cause me to consider that the good news to the undocumented worker is actually good news for my neighbor, and that makes it good news for me? Can we be pressed into that kind of a space where we see the world through Jesus' eyes and say, good news for my neighbor is good news for me? As kingdom people, do we have an imagination for a world where good news for the poor, the captive, and the oppressed, the people that Jesus talked about from Isaiah chapter 61, good news for the prisoners, do we live with an imagination that good news for them is also good news for us? And maybe that seems like a bad question. Maybe that seems like, why are you at? That's a weird question. Why, what does that have to do with anything? That's not how the world works. You know, whatever. Maybe it seems like that, and that's okay. But I think it's actually the question that Jesus poses when he stands up in the synagogue in our passage today. Because if you read on past where we stop, Jesus declares the year of the Lord's favor, and it says everybody is pumped. They love this guy. It says they're speaking well about him. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? I didn't know he was dope like this. Like, well, I'm into this year of the Lord's favor. Let's party, shoot off the fireworks. Yes, they're into it. Then Jesus says something strange. He always does this. Jesus says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. And what Jesus is saying is, I just declared Jubilee, 
and now you want me to bring Jubilee to you. You heard me declare Jubilee, and you're now thinking it's Jubilee time for us. You want to see the miracles. You want to see the works. You want me to be the Messiah. You're ready for it. Let's do this. It's Jubilee time. Jesus is saying you're excited about what I just read because you're hearing it as good news for you. And then Jesus says, but here's the thing. It's actually good news for someone else. This is how the story ends. Luke Chapter 4, 24 through 28. Truly I tell you, Jesus continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's, in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. He's talking about a drought that happened in the time of Elijah. There was a drought. And Jesus is saying there was widows in Israel. There was people like you, Israelites, Jews, these people, God's chosen people. There was people like you that Elijah could have gone to. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, to your enemy, to people that you don't really like. That's where Elijah was sent. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. There's a lot of people with leprosy all over the world at this time. And Jesus is saying there's all sorts of people with leprosy. And yet Elisha the prophet was sent to heal who? Naaman the Syrian. Again, Elisha was sent to heal your enemy. Elisha could have healed anybody. And yet Elisha was sent to heal Naaman the Syrian. Then it says... All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built in order to throw him off of a cliff. That turned fast. I mean, like, what a, what a range of emotions we've experienced together in this synagogue on this day. One minute, we're like, Jubilee, let's go. And the next minute, we're ready to throw Jesus off the cliff. Why? Because Jesus invites the people gathered in the synagogue to get excited about good news for someone else. Because as kingdom people, good news for our neighbors is good news for us too. Good news for the oppressed, for the downtrodden, for the poor and the lonely. Jubilee for those who need it the most is also jubilee for us. The kingdom imagination requires that we see our neighbor's need as our need. And when our neighbor's need is met, even if it means bad economic news for us, even if it means bad social news for us, even if it means bad political news for us, it's good news for us. Because we and our neighbors are connected in the kingdom of God. Justice for our neighbors is good for us. Our spiritual needs and our physical needs are tied to the spiritual needs and the physical needs of our neighbor. And here's the thing. When we see them as tied together, we realize that when our neighbors flourish spiritually and physically, we also flourish. That is the countercultural, upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. That's why that reality cannot and will not fit into any mold of any social program or any political platform or anything like it. It can't fit into any uh, mold that this world offers to us because the world will always to tell us to look at what's good for us. Good news for me, me first, my family first, my country first, my state first, me first. That's what the world tells us to look at and worry about. 
the idea that good news for our neighbor is good news to us is actually antithetical to the way that the world works. The way the world works says me and mine, good news for me first. Our world cannot handle good news for our neighbor being good news for us. And that's why they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. That's why they ran him out of town and they tried to kill Jesus right then and there because what they heard him say was that Jubilee would not primarily be about them. That Jubilee was good news for the poor and thus it was good news for them, but only if they had a renewed imagination for the world around them. Only if they could sit and say, what's good for my neighbor, the flourishing of my neighbor. And this goes back to two weeks ago, we talked about what it means to love your neighbor. When my neighbor flourishes, I flourish as well. Good news for the oppressed, as Jesus says, for the captives, as Jesus says, for the prisoners, as Jesus said, good news for them is good news for me. So the challenge this morning is probably apparent, but I'll say it out loud anyway. Do we want to throw Jesus off of a cliff? If this is really what Jesus is saying, do we want to go throw Jesus off of a cliff? Maybe you want to throw me off a cliff. Don't kill the messenger, guys. Okay. Do we want to throw this whole idea off of a cliff because we see and understand the cost of it will be high? When our physical needs of our neighbors are met, it does cost us something socially, right? It does, it requires something social. Maybe we don't yell about getting that specific social change. But if we yell for justice for our neighbors, we know inherently something will change. Do we believe that Jubilee, for those who need Jubilee the most, is also Jubilee for us? Or are we like those Israelites in the synagogue that day and can't imagine good news for the widow in Sidon or good news for Naaman the Syrian of all people? How in the world is that good news? Do we have a kingdom imagination or are we just spinning our wheels around and what the world tells us and how the world tells us we ought to think? That's, that's it. That's it for today. And that's why it's hard to live as kingdom citizens. It ain't easy. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. This is, the, this is part of that cross. Can we have an imagination for the kingdom of God that costs something and is good news for someone else? Let's pray. God is, is often so uh, much the case, I feel... A convicted first, God, that I don't stand up and say this stuff because I'm killing it. I don't stand up and say this stuff because I know the answers. I don't stand up here, God, and, and try to deliver a message out of Luke chapter 4 because I have figured it out. God, I haven't. I thank you for your grace for me, your, your love, your loving kindness, your patience for me, God. And I thank you for your spirit that, that presses me forward into new spaces and new imaginations, God. And that's my prayer for all of us gathered here today, God, that, that we would open ourselves up to the spirit, 
knowing that we're not going to get it right, knowing that we're always going to be fighting the battle, knowing that there's always going to be some division within ourselves between what, what we want to do because we have grown up and are enculturated in this world, and yet, God, what the Spirit tells us is true and what we are called out to do as your people, as citizens of the kingdom of God. The struggle will remain with us, God, until the day that we see you face to face. And so, God, I pray for strength for the struggle. I pray for the the openness to receive this message, God, first and foremost for myself. And and then, God, I pray that for all those gathered here and gathered online today. God, I pray that we don't try to collapse these ideas into a social platform that we yell about. God, I pray that we don't try to ignore these ideas and over-spiritualize everything, God. I, I pray that somehow, like, Like you did, Jesus, we can see the spiritual and the physical connected, that we can see how when our neighbors flourish, we flourish, God. We love you so much, God, and we're so grateful that you love us, that you care for us, that you are there with us uh, in all of our failings, God. Give us strength and lift us up as we go out this week. I pray all this in your name. Amen.